0: Hi Matt, how you doing? Yeah, good, how are you? Very well, very well. Bit of rain just now though, bit miserable with the weather, but apart from that, can't complain. So where I am, we've
1: just got a little last vestiges of blue sky, but the clouds are sort of getting grayer and grayer in the distance. So it's coming over here. So we'll be raining before too long, I'm pretty sure. Go on,
0: go on then, tell us where you are.
1: Well, if you wouldn't guess by my elaborate photograph behind me, it is Wimbledon championships. So my new ludicrous sporting uh, venue for this week is, 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 Wimbledon. So I'm in one of the interview rooms. So what they have, they've built this incredible new broadcast studio, which is in this big circle. they have got this sort of Interview theatre where they do the main press conferences, where, where a Djokovic or a Murray will come, and I'm in one of these little interview rooms where you can do smaller interviews with maybe lesser-known players. So they've let me take over one of these, and I think the soundproofing's pretty good in here, so we shouldn't get too disturbed. But if there's suddenly a knock on the door and a tennis player comes in, it means I'm, I'm going to have to <laughs> have to relocate.
0: But uh, oh, you can bring them in for a chat. Yeah,
1: there we go. That'll, that'll be a live sporting misadventure. Yeah. Who's um, your
0: favourite tennis player to interview? when you come to Wimbledon, who, like, who do you look forward to? Who's good value?
1: I mean, I really like Murray to talk to because I just think he's a more rounded human being. You know, some sports people are just so obsessed, understandably, you wake up in the morning, you go to bed and you just sport, 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 but- He's just got so much more to him so much more worldly wise and i always find that fascinating with a sports person i mean you you were the same you were good at because you had a life bef- before sport if that makes sense oh so- oh
0: man <laughs> oh you're embarrassing
1: me <laughs> no but do you know what I mean. so often people you know you interview some of the some people who've started football at 13 and that's all they've ever known you know if there's yeah. some, some sort of grounding but before and beyond that is always makes makes more interesting to talk to
0: and what about if you look at andy now compared to you know, in 2005, 2006, is it just him maturing? Is it just his who he is as a person or, I, you know, what, yeah, what's the reason for it?
1: I went out into Valencia probably around that time and interviewed him and and he was just coming out the other side, but he talked a lot about how he was really uncomfortable. You know, he's, he's not naturally a person that would want to have spoke to a hundred people after winning or losing a tennis match that just some people, it just comes naturally to it, didn't to him. So I think maturity and growing accustomed to it. But he's become excellent at it, you know. And he always seems mm-hmm. to strike strike the right note, anyway, for me when he's you know asked of contentious issues, etc.
0: Yeah, no, I'd agree. And it's I think it's it's interesting how the media were desperate to portray him in a certain way at the start of his career, but he has gone on to prove everybody wrong, or prove them wrong, and and um, you know become his own person. And 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 as you say, just he can see the bigger picture. It's not just about his own performance and his own career. He he can see the bigger picture of, of the game of tennis and, and sport in general. And actually, he was
1: talking nicely beforehand how his seven-year-old daughter, Sophia, he picked her up from school. And he wasn't allowed to kiss or cuddle her at the school gates and he asked her why afterwards and she said it was embarrassing because <laughs> you sort of become aware he's he's a tennis player and she goes and like you're you're like number nine number 39 in the world or something you know, really... <laughs> <laughs> like
0: if you were number one it would be okay but <laughs> just
1: hugely, hugely dismissive of all that he's achieved but it's, it's really good because that's what i mean about the levelness he has you know and children yeah. have an amazing ability to bring you back down to earth um
0: they do. if you get they too do. big for your boots Indeed. So who, so we who got? Oh, yeah, I was going well, to
1: ask you that. Who have we got today, Matt? Well, we've got Chloe Petz on today, uh, who I think is going to be a, you know, sporting wise, I think it'll be more of a, a football related sports chat, but I might, I might be wrong. A massive football fan, I believe a Crystal Palace fan. Uh, she did some quite cool punditry, I think, during the Euros. Um, and I think she's played a bit of football. I don't know. I was chatting to someone here uh, who was telling me how good Maisie Adam was at football in the Soccer Aid match, which uh, a previous guest. But I don't know. I don't know if Chloe's in the same uh, same mould as that. So we'll, we'll we'll kind of find out. But,
0: um, but she's she's touring this year, isn't she? She's in yeah. the, the Fringe in Edinburgh. She's uh, an award winning comic. Um, and yeah, from all the research we've done, it looks like she's going to be quite an interesting and fun guest to have, I think.
1: Yeah, I think I think it be great, and uh, yeah, I, I know footballs not necessarily our two our sporting first loves. Although I know yours was when you were maybe younger. But um,
0: I'm learning more about it every week, though.
1: <laughs> it's great, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, we're getting a fast track on it. Yeah.
0: Hi Chloe, how are you doing? Good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Have you met Matt before?
2: No, I don't think we have met.
1: No, just exchanged emails. Uh, That's that's the extent of it. I also need to add that I don't normally have a Wimbledon picture in my background, in my sitting room, but I'm at Wimbledon for my work this week. So I'm in grand surroundings for for sporting misadventures themed
0: um, backdrop.
2: That looks, um, I'm gonna say it, terrible.
0: <laughs> it's actually his downstairs bathroom, and he puts these every week. He puts a different picture of pretending to be in some exotic location. It was Paris a few weeks ago, he was at Monaco for the Grand Prix, He's pretending to be at Wimbledon. Uh, yeah, you, I tell uh, you what, it,
1: it's not brilliant, is it? i have just really bad.
0: <laughs> I think if you've got, you've got
1: all of the money
2: in the world to commission exactly what you want, and you've gone for that. <laughs>
1: They got in real trouble because they did another bit of artwork of, of famous rivalries at wimbledon and they left andy murray out uh which didn't seem very sensible when that was their sort of best player of recent years so they so their artwork's not been going down a storm the last week um
0: maybe when his career's is over when, when he retires they'll, they'll commission something maybe, special for him maybe. yeah no, but did it have um, to
1: be like
2: rivalries between specific players
1: yeah i think they were talking about re- rivalries over the years but they had two players Yannick Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz that I don't think have won more than a f- three or four matches each on grass were at front yeah. and centre of the picture which was just a bit weird uh so I think they slightly missed the note but...
2: but I can't think of like a um like Andy Murray's direct rival
1: so will his rivalry uh, I guess that's a fair point his rivalry obviously with the big three was trying to beat you know Federer, Djokovic, Nadal he had some great yeah, but... tussles against all of them but yes yes you're right yeah he's not a direct Wimbledon you know you, you, you think of Wimbledon you think of Federer against Nadal don't you or against Djokovic.
2: Um, yeah and then just Murray standing going like please let me in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, he, he did manage to win two of them. He beat
2: Djokovic. I would never criticise Sarah <laughs>
0: <laughs> Are you a tennis fan Chloe? Um,
2: insofar as I would watch most sports um, I sort of just tend to watch like the big tournaments rather than follow it
0: religiously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm the same. I, I kind of I've been to Wimbledon. and I'd be very lucky to get invited a couple of times, and it's it's just the kind of sporting event that that you all get everybody gets drawn into. And when you go there, it's it's more than just tennis. It just feels like a, a really special thing to be part of.
2: Absolutely, yeah. It feels like there's a there's a real history to it. But it, it also feels like one of those events where, and I don't know whether I'm talking out my ass, but from pe- people that I know that have said uh, have gone have said that it like the atmosphere that they capture on the television is quite close to what you feel when you're there like it they're good at sort of capturing the the buzz and the excitement
0: yeah I think there's a lot of sports that's not the case and, and you you know it, the TV really misses out on the energy but Wimbledon I think is you're right yeah I think it's one of these ones that you do the centre court in particular the one thing it doesn't or for me it didn't get I didn't appreciate how big Wimbledon is when you when you go out and wander around all the the open courts and how many people there are out there and just you know it's like a teaming just this really busy exciting place to go wandering around but yeah it's always the focus on centre court and number one court but actually there's there's way more to it than just that
2: did you get to sit in the vip section
0: well you know i'm not gonna not
2: gonna
0: lie well the first the first year i went was in 2005 and it was so they have a, a sports person saturday in the middle saturday and, and it was the year after the Olympic Games. So the year, every four years after the Olympics, they tend to invite the majority of the Olympic, the British Olympic team who've, you know, got medals or done well that year. And I won my first gold medal in, in Athens in 04. So I got invited and didn't really know what to expect and turned up and, and you get ushered into the Royal Box and it's very strict dress code. And you've got your, you know, you've got sweaty little hands holding onto the invitation. and You kind of get ushered through and you walk in and it's it's genuinely, it's it's just a really, really special place to be. But it's not just the fact that you're, you're there to watch the tennis. It's also who else is going to be there. So you get ushered into this little room for kind of breakfast before the, or it's afternoon tea, I think it is, before you start. And there was Sean Connery standing there with his wife. And I remember just being absolutely <laughs> blown away to, to you know, because Sean Connery to me is like one of the kind of the iconic Scottish heroes um, from years gone by. And, and yeah, he was there, a big giant of a man. And I got, you know, sort of, Saw him. I didn't really have the, the courage to go straight across and say hello, but sort of thought maybe later on. And he was really getting into the tennis. He was cheering on Andy Murray. It was Andy's first match or first year at Wimbledon. In two, and was that in 2005?
2: In 2005,
0: yeah. he has been around that long? Yeah, it's incredible when you think about it. I mean, 18 years to be... And he was already, you know, he, he kind of hit the ground running because he was... I think that was the fourth round, maybe, or fifth round. A fourth round he got knocked out against an Albanian, but that was the match he lost. But it was a five-setter and it was an absolute epic game but um but yeah sean was getting really into it and sh- come on murray <laughs> shouting <laughs> getting on his feet and getting excited and then at lunchtime um you get allocated into your seats just randomly next to whoever the guest that's come in before you and we sat down and it was a table of four with sean connery and his wife so that, that was quite connery. exciting yeah
2: is it weird like when you're i suppose when you're training to be an athlete you don't really think about fame you just think about getting really good at cycling fast and then and then all of a yeah. sudden you're thrown into this spotlight
0: yeah i think you really notice it with the, the kind of what you call it, amateur sports the uh, lower profile sports that a lot of them are in the olympic games so track cycling it's not a massive sport um you know 20 years ago nobody in britain had really heard of it you know i used to say i was a professional cyclist to people and, and Taxi drivers would be like, all oh, right, what, are you Are you a courier? Is that, you know, do you deliver packages? No, <laughs> oh, no, I'm actually race bikes. All oh, right, what, the Tour de France? No, no, it's on uh, like on the drone. You know, no one had heard of it back then. It's, it's it's grown in profile since then. But yeah, you're right that you don't start out with, not even, it's not an aim, but not even thinking it would be a, a part of your life. Um, and yeah. therefore it's, you know, if you're taking up a sport like tennis or football, if you're aiming to be the best, if you're going to become, you know, if you're going to make it to the premiership, then you know that you're going to become well known, and it's going to be yeah. a, part, a factor in your life. But for us, most Olympic athletes, you just do it for the for the love yeah. of it, and for the the hope that one day you might win a medal. But you never ever imagine that you're going to be rubbing shoulders with you know film stars or pop stars or your heroes that you've seen on TV. And yeah, it's it's quite a quite a bizarre thing with the first time or the first couple of events you go to. It's <laughs> really surreal, and it's you're always fighting the urge to pester folk and take pictures. But you look back and think, yeah, go for it. You know why not get Get the memories, capture those memories.
2: I just, any um, anytime I'm now in a space where I want to get a picture of someone, I just like hover next to them in the hope that they'll be like, <laughs> just me. And-
0: <laughs> just <laughs> photobomb them.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll get one, but I won't have, uh, have asked for the selfie.
0: Who was the first person that you met in in some scenario where, you know, you were in a working context or you were invited to an event that was a massive hero of yours and you you were excited to meet?
2: I just did the Palace um, award ceremony. Oh wow. And, yeah, at the end of the season and that was like a really weird one because you sort of you like I was so nervous. And what what was good was like um like if I'd done it 3 or 4 years ago, I would have I would have been nervous for weeks. <laughs> but because like, you know, you get to a point in your career in stand up where like things that you should legitimately be nervous about and like you're kind of a psychopath for not being nervous about them there's just so many of them that you have to just like localize it to the day so I was like I won't think about it and then on the day that's when I'll like allow myself to focus and get nervous so I was I was thinking about it all day and there was like a it, it sometimes when you have a big gig in the evening it feels like your birthday because it's like I know today is special and there's always like <laughs> something in the back of your mind like it's it's my birthday or like I'm doing the palace war ceremony tonight and I walked in and it was at the Clapham Grand and I just looked around and I was like, it's so funny that I have been so nervous all day about trying to impress some 22-year-olds. <laughs> like, you know, in any other scenario, I'd be like, they're, 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 children. They're, they're, they're children. And then when I could sort of see them in front of me and just be like, these are just like normal, sweet young men it sort of took the sting out of it a little bit but when I saw Roy Hodgson who is famously not a 22 year old man <laughs> that was when I was like he I don't know he had like an aura to him have you met him?
0: I met him once in a urinal and he was one of the <laughs> nice, nicest people I've ever spoken to just a genuinely kind man and and just you know literally a couple of convers, a couple of sentences. But you get you can you can tell immediately, can't you, whether somebody is you know what kind of person they are? And yeah, yeah that, that and was my one bit of contact with him. He's a, he's a sort of bloke that definitely like even in a urinal he can make an impact
2: on you, and he's always got <laughs> something erudite to say. Like he'll he'll just be having a piss, and then it'll be like this reminds me of the time I was using an urinal in the Parthenon, and then you know, <laughs> like pretty good history or something. He's just so smart. I don't understand how a man can be that smart, but also like um really like emotionally intelligent and I think mm. that's why like you look at Palace and you're like how does this like old bloke relate to all of these like young men from south london from like you know very different backgrounds to him and it's just because like he just knows how to talk to everyone
1: also there yeah. was one of the, well, there was one of the players i can't remember which one it was who said he's totally transformed him by joining the club he'd lost his way a bit and come Is back it? yeah that's it exactly and he yeah. said he was like almost like cuz he's this sort of father figure and he's totally and it's so weird. It's just the tiniest switch difference. It doesn't sound like he did loads, but he sort of almost put an arm around him and said, I this is the
2: when, Like, I trust you. You know what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Brilliant.
0: Um, but yeah. You're, you're a Palace fan though, aren't you, Chloe? So that's, that would have been a big deal. I mean, just... Oh, it was...
2: Uh, it was I, I cannot tell you how much of a big deal it was. It was it was honestly crazy. And then uh, a couple of weeks after that, I played in a charity match at Sellers Park and that was so cool as well. Well, uh, wow. Just having those opportunities, like anyone else would be like, who cares, you know? But then I'm like walking onto Sellers Park pitch next to Sam Togwell going, I've really made it. I've, <laughs> I've really made it. <laughs>
0: but there's something about walking out onto the turf, isn't it, of, a, of a, a team or a pitch that means something to you. It's just, it's it's re- recognising that all your heroes, all those important moments happen right there on on those exact blades of grass you know it's it's something incredible about that experience
2: it's also like the perspective change as well because you're so used to watching it from like a sort of all-seeing angle where like you're, you're kind of sat above it or you're watching it on tv and then when like your perspective changes and it's like you're experiencing it in the first person it's like you know on a video game where like you switch from like third person to first person, you're like, whoa, this is this is crazy. And you just like get a real like sense of the size and scale of what it actually feels like to be out there. That I guess that helps you like recontextualize some of those amazing moments that you speak about where, mm. you know, James MacArthur bangs one in against Watford in the ninety third minute. You're like, oh I'm standing on that <laughs> ground. I can see exactly what he saw.
0: How did the match go for you? What was it what was it like?
2: Oh uh, it was it was good, yeah. Like I I played right back and um I think that's because I'm quite slow both in pe- like pace, speed of body and speed of thought. <laughs> so I have to have the game in front of me so that I can just do like really <laughs> take my time to work out what is that I want to do. But I think I was all right. Um, we did lose, I think we lost six, two or six, three in the end, but I'm not too worried about that because they had um, Andre Frey in midfield and he, just two weeks before i would finished um, a League Two season. And he just was so fit and so cultured and just ran the game. And um, we uh, we had Andy Johnson and Way Routledge on our team and we were in it. And then after about 20 minutes, they were like, I don't fancy this, and went off and we're like, well, what were you meant to do? <laughs> and then going forward, I was all right. But then they put a um, the, uh, this young guy, he's, I think he's a boxer. They put him on me and then just, they just fed it out to him. And then he just knocked it past me and ran past me. I was like, I'm, like I'm not going to keep up with this <laughs> sprightly young man. I'm not going try. I'm just going to watch and applaud whatever it is. He but I loved it. I really, really loved it. And I now refuse to play football with anyone other than professionals or ex-professionals.
1: <laughs> they do so much of the work for you. So what age were you when you were first in the stands as a kid at Selhurst Park watching games with your folks, I guess?
2: I think really young, um, maybe like six or seven. Oh, right. um, we sat in the family stand and it would have been when uh, it was Division One. And who would Palace have had? We would have had like Aki Realati, Michael Hughes, Darren Powell, all, all old school players like yeah. that. I loved it. Often like I don't think I really knew what was going on, but then I grew up and like just re- it, it really helps you. Like gaining an understanding of the game, just watching it week in, week out. And watching the same players play week in, week out. And I just loved it. The, the whole ritual of going to it.
3: Yeah.
2: I'd wake up on a Saturday morning and be buzzing. And then me, my mum, my dad, my brother, we'd all get in the car and we'd get there a bit early. And we'd go and get the sweets and then we'd have our lunch. And on oh, yeah, it, it was just absolutely incredible.
1: And were you always with the same you had set seats so we were the same different people, so you sort of got friendly with the people who sat around you, or was it not not like that?:
2: No, we did. There was um, two blokes that sat behind us, one called Gavin and one called Dad. And uh, Gavin was so lovely. He and I he was like a, probably in his thirties or something, but I think he had um, like a, a learning disability or, or something like that. And he and I sort of, sort of bonded. But Gavin was really funny because he would shout. Um, he'd have his select phrases that he enjoyed shouting. And one of, one of our favourites was he would shout, corner, even if it was um, absolutely nowhere near the corner. <laughs> he'd shout, offside, constantly. <laughs> um, he'd, shove, um, he'd shout, I'm going to shove the flag up the linesman's ass. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he'd shout, "You wait until David Beckham comes to play for us." That was (laughs) fun, but it was really nice because, like, yeah, what, like, why would a, you know, a seven-year-old girl and sort of a man in his late twenties just like have that opportunity to just like have quite a sweet friendship, um, and like bond over that? And that's what's the amazing thing. It's like we should have had nothing in common, but we have Palace in common, and that's that's what you bond over.
0: And did that make you want to play? Did you did you start playing football at school and the play in, in your break yeah, time? Yeah.
2: yeah, I remember so clearly when I started playing. I was really small then, maybe like four. And I remember my brother was going to train with a team that had just been created. And I was so excited that I put on like my full Crystal Palace kit and I had a ball with me. And I wasn't like expecting to be able to train or anything. I was just gonna kick the ball around while all the boys while all the boys played, um, just play with my dad. And I remember um, the manager was like, does Chloe want to come play? And I played with all of these sort of six-year-old, seven-year-old boys and um, absolutely had the bad bug from then. And I remember as well, I was in, what year would I have been in? Year one? Um, It's really, really small. And I remember a girl coming around with a flyer and she was like, look, here's a flyer for a girl's football team we should join and i i took the flyer and i remember running out to my mom and going look look mum, can we, can we do this can we do this can we can i join and we started this um this football team which was an off- offshoot of the falston zebras we were called the falston phillies and we were the youngest girls team in the country at the time wow and um so we had to play with all the boys The first game, we got absolutely slapped, like (laughs) 25-0. We were all so happy. We were just so buzzing just that we were getting to play football. And then by the end of the season, I think we lost
3: like
2: 6-0 and we were all celebrating like we've won the World Cup.
3: Brilliant.
2: And then um, the following season, we managed to score a goal and we drew with a boys team and... Um, honestly, I felt quite sorry for them. The only team that we got a pawn for, yeah, they must have really hung their head in shame. But th- but then we joined them, um, the girls' league when we were old enough, and there was a girls' league. And uh, because of the experience that we'd had, like playing for two or three years extra and against the boys, we just like w- walked that, and we we won loads. And then I got scouted for Charlton and played for Charlton for three or four years, two or three years but then i just like i don't know i lost my nerve a bit when it when it became pressured and not for fun i always cuz i played in goal i just never had the mentality cuz i always felt like you know if you make a mistake in goal you've you've let your team
3: down
0: and that <clears throat> that pressure really got to me and that was enough to you just you just didn't fancy doing it anymore or did you just play at a lower level or did you just walk away from it completely
2: i just quit and it was like a real like um sort of uh you know dark dark night of the soul kind of thing like I really felt upset about it and I think there was some kind of like subterranean pressure that I put on myself which was like no like you're Chloe that you play football that's what you do but I never like stopped and think that I was like getting sick like on the Thursday night before a Saturday game just thinking about it and just
3: God.
2: yeah I just I don't know why I, I, I thought I had to do it. But I also think that that gave me really good training in mentality because I feel like the closest psychology to stand up I can think of is sports psychology. Like mm. it's exact like being a goalkeeper for me, I use exactly the same mentality as when I walk out on stage to do a
1: big gig. And are the nerves similar or or you don't get sick if you've got a Saturday gig, you don't stop feeling ill on a Thursday, I take it
2: well it's, it's funny because I think I've always like been drawn to these things that make me feel sick like, <laughs> like, like this podcast for example
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, it makes a lot of people feel sick this
2: podcast. <laughs> yeah and that's nothing to do with nerves <laughs> um, no I am um, when I was like when I first started doing it I, I fucking hated it so like, I don't know why I carried on doing stand-up like I would be so nervous all day for the gig. And then, like, oftentimes the gig would go terribly because they're not set up to go well, those open mics, because all you're doing is, like, stand up to a room full of comedians who are looking at their own notes. And you just, you just feel, like, <laughs> humiliated. But I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And then, fortunately, I improved. And now I don't feel sick. I feel... Mainly excited, and I feel like a sense of all of those like early years of training are what lead you up to now. So, you know, last year <clears throat> I supported Ed Gamble at um, live the uh, not live the Apollo at the Hammersmith Apollo, and that one was like one of those ones where it was like felt like my birthday, you know, <laughs> so nervous but so excited. And then you just the thought in my brain was just like, these are like. This is like the Champions League final, right? Mm. You you don't. This is the big gig that you train for, and you you don't bottle it because you've done all of the work and you know that you can do it. And also going, being able to go, this is this is why I do this, not to be overawed by the occasion. To go like, this is yeah, this is what I worked for, and
0: yeah. That that's interesting you say that because that's so similar to the the experiences that I had in, in sport that. Having to remind yourself that this is the reward. This is actually, don't be scared. Don't be nervous. You know, that it's, it's totally natural that this, the kind of feelings you get, but actually it's reminding yourself, first of all, you've done the work. You're here because you deserve to be here. And this is going to be good. <clears throat> and it's always after, I don't know about you. When you come off stage, when I came off the track, almost regardless of the result, no matter how it went, you kind of go, oh, that was so much better than I thought it was going to be. And actually, I really enjoyed that. And then I just need to remind myself next time that it's going to be all right. And yet every time you still have that initial feeling in the pit of your stomach of, wow, this is this is a big day. Um But yeah, I guess it's, it's understanding what you've got control over and not worrying about all the things, the chaos around you. Focus on what you've got control over and go out and try and enjoy it.
2: But I also think that point of like, this is why having done stand-up I feel so much more compassion for like young sports people because I think we underestimate the fact that like the more you do something the like the more a like the more evidence you have that you can do it and the more like calmness so it's, it's like people will say to me like how does it feel getting heckled and I'm like now I don't care about getting heckled because the majority of heckles are completely unoriginal and I would have heard them before. And I've got all of this wealth of experience to draw upon to come back at that person just immediately and they're done. And it's it's like that with, you know, footballers when they're 27, they've pretty much seen every scenario that they possibly could, and they've got this wealth of experience to draw upon and, you know, make the pass or score the goal or whatever. And yeah, it's just like committing to it and just doing it over and over and over again, and that improves you. I would really like to know, like, did you have when you were doing like a big race or or any race, did you have like a like method of getting in the zone?
0: Yeah, I, I kind of, I guess there was the physical warm up. So you, the warm up would start maybe an hour and a half before the race, so you'd be this very gentle, steady warm up where you'd be doing your stretching, and you get on the, the static bike, and you would physically get your body ready. But it was during that time, as you're getting your body physically ready you'd put your headphones on, you'd have a pre-race playlist and that's when you started. So at the start of my career, without having had any um, benefit of any sports psychology or any help at all, that's when you have all these wild thoughts of, oh, this is massive and I don't know if I can do this and how oh, my legs feeling and I don't, you know, start getting superstitious and looking for things to try and, you know, is this going to be good luck or I don't know what's going on and all these chaotic thoughts just, you know, they don't help you. But then as you as you mature and as you're talking about there, as you get, as you prove to yourself over the years that actually this is, you know, you've done this before. You know what to do. These are the things you can control. These are the things you can't control. And and I kind of had a mental warm-up where I would start addressing all the fears, all the, all the worries and anxieties of, is this going to go right or wrong? It's like, well, you don't know. You can't guarantee you're yeah, going to yeah, win yeah. this. There's no guarantees. But what the guarantee is that you've done all the training, you've worked as hard as you can, you're physically prepared here. This is how the race is going to pan out, hopefully, even though it's a chaotic event where there's lots of different tactics involved. These are the tactics I'm going to try and employ. And and I used to use visualization. I just visualized how I wanted it to pan out. And while you're thinking about the positives of how you're going to do it, there's no space for any negative thoughts to come into your head. So it, was, it worked in, in two ways. You're reinforcing the positives, but you're also stopping any negatives coming in at that time. So it was... And yeah, I make it sound as if you then go in a really calm state to the start line, and everything's fine. You're still, you're still nervous. You still have the adrenaline. You still, your heart rate's still up. But you know, whatever. But you're in an You're you're relatively in control. And it's it, it's so much more enjoyable when it's like that. And I almost, I, it was the two hours before I hated. Up to about five minutes to go, it's just oh god, I just want to get on with this. And as soon as you're on the bike, as soon as you sling your leg over the bike and you sit on it and you get locked into the pedals. That's when you start to feel that, right, okay, you're pressing play in a on a you know recorded video or whatever. This is it's now in motion and off we go. And it's it's but it's funny looking back now, you for, you forget just how nervous you can be and how much it can the rest of the world is just blocked out. You're just in this little kind of bubble yeah, of your yeah, own yeah. thoughts and your own your own fears. And one of the techniques um that the psychologist Steve Peters, who was our team psychologist, taught me was about perspective and about imagining yourself in a helicopter rising up and up and up, looking down the situation and realising how ridiculous it is and how small and how <laughs> insignificant you are. And yeah. actually, do you know what? Nothing's going to change. If you if you fall off your bike, if you come last, it, nothing is going to change. It's just not the end of the world. Go out and try and make the most of this opportunity. Don't see it as a burden.
2: And isn't it like, it feels so counterintuitive, but certainly in stand-up, the less you care, the better you get. And yeah. Like now, I could just walk out in front of fifteen hundred people and just be like, "Ah, it's fine." And you need that—you almost need that sort of dissociation from the reality of the fact that all of those eyes are on you to be able to perform and just put it into this, yeah, context of just like, "Ah, it doesn't matter." There's nothing but worse. You know it does, but
0: yeah, of course. But do you know when you're when you're in the audience, whether it's at a comedy gig or. I don't know, someone singing or someone doing a speech, you know, at a corporate event at work or whatever. When you see someone that's nervous, it's just awful because you don't, you you feel awful for them and everybody tenses up in the room and it's just this kind of feeling like, oh no. People want to see somebody relaxed on stage enjoying themselves, whether, no matter what it is they're doing, they want to see them having fun. Yeah, in control. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, and you can sense the fear. It's like, a you know, vicious circle when, when it's not going well on stage the crowd tents up and then they they can sense that from the crowd and it just gets worse and worse yeah
2: it is it's mad though how the crossover between sports psychology and but I guess it's like it's any like high pressure thing mm. the, the the like skills are transferable but I always think about like I think it was like maybe like Fabian Barthez or something my dad and I would like speak about it when I was a kid where it would be like you are going to make mistakes but you work hard to so that like 99% of the time you don't make a mistake and having that like mentality towards mistakes as well of like okay I've made one but I won't let that happen again is also really cool because I now have this like fit like this sense of like fortitude where if I haven't got an audience in the first five minutes when you first start you're like well I'm never getting them back and now You're just like, I've got, I've got, I've got this, I've got the tools to deal with this. And then also, yeah, again, like if you show you're in control of that sort of angst, then that's when people just settle down and sort of start enjoying what you, what you have to offer.
0: I love watching comics when they're on stage and it's not maybe not their audience. So they step out and they'll tell a couple of jokes and they'll see the reactions, good or bad, and then start tailoring what they're they're saying to the audience. And to me, you know, obviously if you go out to a packed audience of all paid to come and see you, they're on your side, they're excited, they're they're up for it. It must be it must be the biggest challenge when you're playing to an audience who aren't paying to see you and having to Thinking your feet and and you know think right that one landed that one didn't how are we going to you know which direction are we going to go here yeah almost like catch you know cash in, uh, casting a, a you know fishing rod out and trying to catch seeing what's going to catch seeing what's not going to land and and um, yeah that to me I, I love watching that and that is yeah the sign I guess the sign of a great comic someone who can do that and adapt to the audience
2: yeah and I guess that's also like experience as well isn't it um, but I also think the thing that you said about like, during a race, like, that being, like, the whole world turns off for you. Like, I think exactly the same, like, stand-up is a form of mindfulness because, like, as you say, when you're concentrating so hard on just assessing everything that's going on in the room, you're everything else is just out the window and you're just, like, really focused on that task in front of you. And that's why I guess it becomes quite addictive and quite, like, liberating because, you know, all of the noise of the rest of the world is gone for that moment. And that's why you're so buzzing for it in those two hours before the race or, you know, those couple of hours before a gig. Oh, it's great. I
0: love it. So when you, can you apply that to other things? Like, for example, when you went out for that charity match at Crystal Palace, when it's not the thing that you are, it's not your profession, you're still good at football, but it's, it's not your main thing. Are you able to apply that? and be as calm and be as composed or is, does it only work on things that you know inside out
2: no I think I think now I've got like a I think certainly in like careers like this where you, you're just like thrown weird stuff every day I feel like I now have like a capacity for weird stuff where it doesn't matter what the weird thing is I'll just like turn up to it and be like I have the evidence that this will largely be okay I don't really know what this is so I feel like again that's what you're trying to get a bit of training in and stand up is just to like jump into something unfamiliar and that feel normal so it's just like the general concept of the abnormal becomes normal to you because you're like it's just another abnormal thing again um but like yeah the the palace thing I was mainly just excited for that because there was no expectation on me I think when I play football now in like little tournaments or five a side or whatever I do still put pressure on myself because I don't know I feel like it was quite like traumatic playing football when you're a teenager because there's just like just so many men just shouting at you and I think that's why I got in my head because I was there was just so much noise around like everyone just took it so seriously that yeah you felt like you were letting them down so now when I play football still that's the one area where I think I sometimes get overawed because it just takes you back like I'll I'll tell myself be calm it doesn't matter it's stupid it's just a game but there's still that like little like child Chloe, who's like quite upset by by by, oh. by the men shouting. You know.
0: Do you still play in goal then, or do you still, not shy away from it? Do you, do you prepare to play outfield now, or do you play in yeah. goal as well?
2: I play outfield. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't think I'd. I don't think I spend much time in goal. I did a little bit at the end of the Celeste Park match, and that again we were losing. There, all pressure was off, and and I I just I was getting subbed off. And I was like, but I want to stay out here, doing that classic, like, you know, throwing the water bottle in the air, getting the getting <laughs> way it goes and, um, uh, and then the goalkeeper wanted to come off and I was like, I'll go. And that was just because I wanted to spend as much time on the turf as possible. But yeah, no, I, I, do, I do still find that quite hard.
1: Have you had any um, sort of sporting misadventures on the football field or in other sporting um, capacities at all?
2: Um, I remember when I'm... Um, I played rounders a lot at school. I, I think rounders might be like God's God tier sport. I just think it's brilliant because uh, mainly because I think I'm good at it, but also anyone can have a go. It's great. And um, I would play um, for the school team. And I remember once um this girl hit this, she like whipped it acro- like across her body and it was coming my way. And I did a dive catch and it was absolutely extraordinary. But as I did it, my trousers ripped straight down the middle. Oh no. And then it was given as a no ball. Um, <laughs> so, so my dive catch was obsolete. Oh, for
0: nothing. Oh.
2: But she second, second, um, hit, she hit, put it in exactly the same place and I dived and I caught it again, but my, my trousers were still ripped. So who was, <laughs> who was the real winner there? I don't, <laughs> it certainly didn't feel like
0: me. Um, I think rounders should be an Olympic sport, though. I mean, it's it's great. Everyone knows it. I mean, pretty much. Isn't that what baseball is? I don't really I don't really Follow baseball. What's the I difference between it baseball like, and rounders? It must be similar stuff.
2: English baseball. Yeah, I yeah. think. Well, Br- British baseball. British. I feel like um, I feel like um, all British sports are so good that when the American ones come over here, they're just like our little our little <laughs> side sports like, we don't. <laughs>
1: We, we had a guest on previously who maimed slash killed a pigeon playing rounders. That was, uh, uh, who was that? Was that Maisie, Chris? Maisie Yeah, that was Yeah. 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 <laughs> so she yeah. hits this pigeon and thinks it's the shot of her lifetime, and then everyone goes a bit quiet as this <laughs> pigeon falls out the tree. And then the teacher takes it off I don't know, to, to its to its death. That's, sure.
3: that's also
2: so classic, Maisie Adam. Even though she's not on this podcast, she's story-topped me. Like, oh, oh, I ripped some trousers! She, like, I, I killed a bird. I,
1: I'm impressed. You carried on playing with your ripped trousers. Did you not have to have a? I was, I was a wardrobe change.
2: No, I was absolutely committed to the game of it This is the thing I, 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 I find like. Any game with no real-world consequence, I absolutely love, and I will dedicate myself to. Like last weekend, I went to a party, and they were playing that game Coop. Have you ever played that? No. Um, what is it? It, it? I reckon if that was an Olympic sport, I could I could train to get into the team. And it, <laughs> it, it, it's basically like you have blocks on one side, blocks on the other side, and you're trying to like hit each other's blocks, and then there's more rules to it but it's whoever, like, clears out all the blocks first.
0: Is it throwing like throwing a ball to knock them over? or
2: No, no, you it's have, like... like, these sticks. They're, like, wooden, like a wooden stick. Yeah. And then you're you're throwing it to push over, like, square wooden blocks, like a little mini tower.
0: Okay.
3: Um,
2: If you want to get together and play a game sometime, I'd be more... <laughs> I'm fun. up for it. I'm up for it. I need to do some
0: practice first, obviously, you know.
2: Obviously, we can do some training. <laughs> it would be an honour to have you on my team.
0: Um, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. What, so what's it called? Sorry? Who? Uh, or B.
2: No, it's like, I think it's like a Scandi thing. Oh, okay.
1: Ah. I think I saw, I, I was camping my kids, one of my kids' class camp, and I saw that. I was wondering what it was, but that must be exactly that game. People are going mad for it as well.
2: Um, I, I don't know what the spelling is, but it's is, it's is extraordinary. Mm. And, but, like, I found, I found so I've got, I got to the um, party with my girlfriend and we got there like a little bit later and I was annoyed that Coob had already started without me. So I basically just like threw off all my stuff. I mean, and then went from like Coob to darts to beer pong. And I just like any any games like that. I'm just, I'm there for the whole evening pool. It's just so much fun. Just, yeah, but because it, like in that moment, you are like, <laughs> it oh, matters. I've got to, I've got to beat this. I've got to beat this chump. And then, um, laugh. It didn't it didn't really matter at all. It was just a laugh, wasn't it?
1: Are you super competitive? Then is that that just kicks in? Does it?
2: Yeah, it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always said like, um I think I am competitive against myself. I want to do the best for myself. But in recent years, I I think that's just. Um, Bullshit, and um, <laughs> I, I want to win at <laughs> um, Oh, and people like, you know, people that aren't competitive or into sports, and they think it's like just gentle bands where they're like, oh, Chloe, you lost, did you? And like, it like to them, that's just a funny thing to say. To me, it like eats my soul. And if you're like, <laughs> if you're trying to like make a good impression, like I was at this party, then you can't react, but you're stood there like, I will, I will, I will cue block you around the head
0: have you done any of the um the kind of celebrity game shows or anything on tv i've done i've done like uh, catchphrase and uh richard osman's house of games and um another one i can't think what it was oh, michael mcintyre's the wheel and and you know what i I've, I've probably got to stop doing them because i sound like i'm a similar similar vein to you i find it really difficult to not just switch into full competitive yep. mode and, and forget this is a this is a TV show, this is for entertainment. It doesn't matter who wins. It does matter who wins because I could <laughs> win a mug with Richard Osman's face on it. No. Um but it's it's so hard and you kind of and you laugh it off as I'm pretending to be competitive. But actually no, no I am that competitive and I do care whether I win this match, you know, this Catchphrase against Faye from Steps and Martin McCutcheon. You know, it's it's just, it's bizarre, but I... <laughs> Martine and I Faye are going in. down. <laughs> exactly.
2: exactly.
0: Yeah, the most recent one. So Richard Osmond one, it's not been out yet, um, but it was, yeah, it got it got very competitive. Rosie Jones was on there. She was brilliant. And uh, yeah, the two of us were very, very heated and very, very competitive. Rosie
2: Jones is a wind-up merchant as well. <laughs> she is. <laughs> He's one of these people that is blessed with not wanting to win, but like she'll nine times out of 10, she will win. And then she'll really like wind you up. It's like, you don't even care. <laughs> I care. <laughs> um, I did house of games and, um, it was one of them where we was, who was on with, um, Matt Horn from Gavin and Stacey. Oh, yeah. Um, Martel... what's her surname? Maxwell from one of those homes. Programs mm-hmm. and Alex Beresford, who's the one that made Piers Morgan s- storm off. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it became very clear that Matt Horn and I were the sort of the two main competitors. And this was this was great, actually. This was good, good, solid television. <laughs> by the by, the final day, we both won two games each, and in the final game, it was whoever wins is going to win the week. And we double points, double points, and we were. 11-all going into what it was very clear was going to be the last question. And um, I think it was something to do with Britpop, and that's not my area of expertise at all. And I was like, of course, of course, it's like Fred Perry wearing chap is going to get this. And he buzzed in, got it, and um, beat me last question. Oh. But it was it was the nicest I've ever felt losing, actually, because we were like so competitive and there was nothing I could have done. And then he um, he gifted me the suitcase as well. So,
3: oh.
2: great outcome.
0: Yeah, they were they were taking the mick. Um, who was it? Was it Ola Labib or was it Rosie? I can't remember who it was. But basically, saying you'd be the only comic on the circuit without a Richard Osman House of Games suitcase if you don't win. <laughs> if you don't win it, because I forgot what day of the week it was where it was. That was the prize.
2: So it, I think it's always a Friday because that's a good one. Ah, uh,
0: was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was. Yeah, I think I think Rosie got it. I I don't want to give too much away but anyway yeah they were saying about how on the stand-up comic circuit the biggest status symbol is to have a house of games um, okay yes
3: there
2: are two schools of thought where it's one is it should be ornamental it's embarrassing to take it out and then my school of thought which is everywhere I go it comes with me (laughs) yeah totally parade it round whenever (laughs) I can absolutely sorry the other one this is now just shameless bragging um (laughs) Got to the pointless celebrities final with Olga Koch and got three pointless answers in the final. Wow, thank you. That doesn't happen very often. It was football, football came up.
1: Oh, brilliant!
2: Yeah, I was uh, I was buzzing. Yeah,
1: you've been a part football pundit, haven't you? As well, you did some stuff during the Euros from memory.
2: Yeah, 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 it's, it's during the Euros, um, on Sky Sports, which I really like. Um, yeah, it's really cool because it feels like, um when you're a comedian coming into those spaces you get a bit more of a like license to um be a bit a bit naughty
3: <laughs>
2: um and the presenters seem to like it because you can sort of like be the partisan voice that they're not allowed to be so you know there was there was lots of stuff around the men's world cup around the sort of um wearing of the rainbow flag and stuff and i think i was able to come in and be like quite uncompromising about
0: <laughs> my thoughts on it and what about the World Cup for the women? Are you involved in that at all? Are you doing any work during that time? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be back
2: on Sky Sports. Um, I have a sneaking feeling that um, as the Lionesses progress through the tournament and do well, more work will come my way. I still think we are a little bit in, a, in an environment where um, TV channels and production companies are still a little sceptical about producing stuff around the women's game like I don't think that like it seems like they forget each new tournament like how big it's going to be and they forget to like stuff in place and then it's like playing catch up a little bit
3: Mm. Um,
2: so I hope you know as the Lionesses again will prove to us how uh, fantastic they are and how um, brilliant a sport women's football is that this could be the World Cup that changes those things
0: yeah absolutely you would think that they'd cottoned on by now I mean after the Europeans that was so massive we were we were at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham watching we were about to go on on air to do the highlights of you know various things that happened that day all sitting in this tiny little green room all watching the with Claire Balding and uh,
3: oh my god all these guys
0: oh it's mental yeah and it was you know I'm Scottish and I was cheering English on who'd have thought but yeah uh, no I I
2: couldn't well that for me thank you I would say Um,
0: you're
2: welcome you're welcome but like this for me like I went um and did some stuff on Robbie Savage's show um before the for the Men's World Cup and it was like all just like Welsh people in the room and I was like, Oh well great. I'm probably gonna have to like, you know, fight my way out of this. <laughs> um, I allied myself with Robert Earnshaw because he was the most popular boy in the room and he sort of looked after me. But um I said to all the Welsh fans, I was like, Did you want the lionesses to win? expecting them to be like, yeah, yeah, it's a good, good thing for like women's football and stuff. And they were like, no, no. <laughs> First round. I hated them. And for, for me, sure. I was like, that means that women's football has arrived because yeah. <clears throat> if you respect an opponent enough to hate them, then <laughs> yeah. that means you aren't seeing them as something to be pitied. You're seeing them as like a an opponent. And I love that
1: yeah I, I i uh watched it on a. I was going up to the commonwealth games on a train was it before it started chris or had i gone home in between i can't remember quite the, <sighs> the timing of it but I was on this train know. from from Bristol up to up to uh, Birmingham, and everyone, every single person, no matter whether it was a kid or an old granny, was on their phones or laptops trying to watch the thing. But everyone had it on various delays, so you'd hear at the back of the carriage, way! and then "Ooh," uh, and so you'd have this sort of delayed effect throughout the carriage. By the end, everyone was like huddled together over a, yeah. a screen or two, watching it together, going up on this train, and then it would cut out because the Wi-Fi wasn't good. It was actually quite a magical experience with a bunch of strangers—a slightly surreal way to watch it. But
2: Chris, is it like it must be? quite weird for you because you're you're like associated with team GB so having to like yeah ally yourself with the English where I guess the impulse is to absolutely hate them has that changed for you? It's,
0: it, well, do you know what as a kid growing up you loved loved to have the rivalry with the English particularly I, I followed rugby but football as well and it was it was kind of drummed into you you know we, you, we love beating the English and when yeah. the English are playing you support whoever whoever's playing against England but I think as you well certainly for me anyway, I, I moved down to, to Manchester to train with the British team when I was about eighteen, nineteen. And my kids were born in Manchester, so my kids are English. Well, born in England. And you I'm kind of you, you start to <laughs> 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 So you so you start to see the world differently and kinda of go, actually, do you know what? It's it's great to have rivalries. I love I love rivalries, sporting rivalries within it's whether it's within a city or a country or it's, you know, neighbouring countries. But do you know what? It's, yeah, you see it for what it is. And I genuinely will. And hand and heart, I'll support England. If they're not playing Scotland, I'll support England or any home nation. I mean, you always support Ireland or Wales anyway. But if, you know, if England are playing someone in the World Cup, you want them to do well. It's good. And it's, it's great because, well, I'm living in England just now and you see the positive Mm. benefits of a national team doing well in a World Cup or a European Championships. Everybody seems to get engaged and involved. There's a, just a real buzz about it. So you think, ah, do you know what? go On then, let's support the English. Who who would have thought my 10 year old self would have been appalled at that thought? But um,
2: yeah. that is very noble of you. I'm going to check in with you once we've stopped recording and uh, <laughs> that was just the party line because you don't yeah. want to lose, yeah. lose, lose words upon it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, it's it's I mean, it's good fun when you're playing when it's when it's you know Scotland England, of course, it's different, or when it's um, I guess, and as well, you start to know people as well on the team so maybe not so much now because I'm getting a bit older but when I was still competing you meet other players in in different sports and you get to know them and actually, you know, I've got good friends with George North, for example, Welsh rugby player who's married to one of my old teammates, Becky, Becky James and Becky North and and so you start to follow them as individuals and watching them playing and, you know, when he's playing Scotland you obviously want Scotland to win but you're also, you know, Want him to have a good game personally. Um but it's yeah. it's, it's you know it's you, you have a different dimension when you start to know people that are actually involved in the games. Absolutely.
1: It sounds like I was gonna ask you if there was a, a, a sport you'd like to invent, but it almost sounds like you had done with that when you were talking about QB or whatever it was a minute ago. But I can't claim that I've invented
2: Q. but, no, but have you got anything? <laughs> um sport a sport that I would like to invent is that a sport that everyone can play and you can play it anywhere and it's called hit this and I play it when I'm at the beach where you if you're on like a pebbly beach what you do is you throw a big stone and then you shout hit this and then you get another smaller stone, and whoever hits it first wins and then you can just keep throwing different stones but I, I just think like I love competition where it shouldn't be found so i I think it should be like one of those games that you just are constantly playing where if someone shouts hit this and then they say like that traffic sign you the first person like find something and hit the sign with it i think
0: um so when when you're saying that do you do you throw it in there it's like sort of clay pigeon shooting and you've got to hit it well it's midair, or you're just (laughs) throwing on the ground and then you say that's that's the target off you go
2: now that's a lovely innovation i think Mm. i think it's (laughs) more just you go hit this, and then you say, that window, and then you point at a window.
3: <laughs>
2: or, Smash. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hit this, and then you point at, I don't know, like a pot, a, a potted plant or something. <laughs> and I think it's um, maybe like you play it over a lifetime, so you mm-hmm. have like a hit this partner, and whenever you're with them, someone shouts hit this, and then like you, you get points, and then they roll over to the next time that you see them.
1: My older son sort of does this. This is when we go to the beach, he'll do exactly that, aim for the stone closest to it. Or when we take the dog for a walk with the ball slinger, whoever's closest throwing the ball to hit the lamppost or whatever. Yeah. So he's very much a version of hit this, but I'm not sure he's got a name for it, but we we shall call it that.
2: But I feel like that's why, like, for me, darts is the ultimate game of skill and athleticism, because I think the human impulse to want to get like a tiny thing To hit a slightly bigger thing is just completely innate, (laughs) and I think that's what all of the best sports are when they just appeal to that like childish desire to just hit something. Do
0: you think it's a Neanderthal or a kind of a primal thing where you are trying to you are hunting and it's just about catching an animal, you know, spearing an animal, or is that is it something that's in our brain that that you are always trying to hit that target because you know that if you hit the target, you are going to get fed. Do you know what
2: that is? Extremely intelligent.
0: Well, thank you very much.
2: <laughs> it's the
0: most—it's the most intelligent thing I've—I've I've said in the podcast. Probably the most intelligent thing ever.
2: I've never I might I have to
0: retire that. now, actually. Yeah.
2: I think—I think it must be that. Yeah, mm. our, our animal brains just go and hit this.
0: Mm. There's something very, oh, very it? pleasing about hitting a target, though, isn't there? You know, yeah. no yeah, matter like what it is. Maisie
1: Adam and her pigeon. <laughs> But the darts is, is amazing because when you do it, it makes it look so easy. Then you have a go, and you'll aim for treble twenty and get a seventeen, a one, and a twelve, or whatever. But it's unbelievable the repetition of being able to, to do that what they do and the scores they get these days. You know, sort of averaging one oh seven or whatever throughout. Superb- how many
0: sets it is, yeah. And do you, do you play much yourself? Darts. Yeah.
2: Um. When I can. Um. And I, 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 played that the weekend where I went to the party and played cube and beer pong. I played darts and there's one of my uh, girlfriend's mates called Charlie is very good at darts and he was teaching me how to play. And he said, I have um, a natural skill at it. Oh, um, excellent. And that we was up. all that I needed here to hear. <laughs> joining the local darts club, I'm dedicating my whole life to it. So <laughs>
0: there should, be, cool. so should be charity darts. I'm just thinking, you know, there's charity football games and all. Yeah. With comedians on, I reckon a charity darts competition should we, would be, would be should brilliant we start let's we could do pitch,
2: it we could pitch it like to ali pali where you know during the world darts championship we should be like ah there should be a bit where just like two non-darts players
0: yeah i'd be a, a part of a team though i think you'd have to do it because i wouldn't you know you wouldn't want to go there just as well maybe you would if you were decent but yeah i think maybe yeah, we should go like
2: comedians versus uh, team gb cycling <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you i
0: have, have to say team gb cycling would You'd you'd absolutely smoke us because cyclists were notoriously bad at every other sport apart from cycling. That's like oh really? Yeah, I think because you have to spend so much time sitting on a bike, you basically <laughs> your posture's bad. You're you know everything else about physically, you're not good at hand to eye coordination. Right. All you all you get good at is riding a bike. So you'd be you'd be odds on to beat anybody that was just a cyclist. I reckon.
2: Come we'll through. Do, See you in Ali Pali in December then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh we'll yeah. Have you been to Ali Pali as a fan? Have you done that? Uh, yet? Because
1: that is great.
2: No, I haven't, but I'm signed up for ticket alerts this year yeah. and I'm going to take a whole gang of people and yeah, I'm buzzing for that. I've I actually um, performed um in the room that they play the darts at Ali Pali and I made them play um Chase the Sun and I came out as though I was a player. <laughs> and that that was one of the coolest coolest feelings I've I've
0: <laughs> yeah. It looks so good on TV, though. I mean, I've never been, yeah, but it, it looks awesome. Brilliant! And well, it's, it's just a massive, massive. pickup. up Like, what else yeah. do you want? I know that Judy Murray's a big fan of it. She was always tweeting back in the day, a few years ago, and she was there, and she was just non-stop live tweeting this this amazing e- or evening or night of, uh, of darts, and she she loves it. Oh, get Judy
1: along then. She can she can play on Yeah, the- yeah. We'll get her get a Scottish team together. And, and Chloe, what for you? Are you off to you're off to Edinburgh soon? Are you? Are you heading? When do you head oh. up there?
2: Thank God you've been professional enough to ask me that because I would have, have rung off this podcast. And not done I've had a lovely day out. I've had a lovely time. Um, but I forgot to do one of the main things I'm here for. Um, yes, I am going to the Edinburgh Fringe. Yep. Um, for the whole month, August the second. That's right, August second to August twenty seventh. I'm doing my new show which is called If You Can't Say Anything Nice. There's some football chat in there, lots of fun stuff. It's uh, about anger and um, how angry I am and how much anger is actually quite fun (laughs) and how being – like I talk about sporting rivalries actually and how like hating Brighton is one of the greatest joys that my life presents. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I would love if people um, would come along and see it because – I think it's funny
0: and fun. Yeah, And, and it's you, great in Edinburgh at that time of year, isn't it? Well, Edinburgh's my hometown, so I'm always... Oh, really? Great. Yeah, yeah, love it, being back home. I don't I don't know if I'm going to be back for the festival this year, but hopefully. Anyway.
1: Yeah,
2: well, if
0: you are, then um,
2: give me a shout on our... Oh, yeah, tickets. definitely.
1: And are you touring with it after Edinburgh as well?
2: I am touring with it, yes. Um, the tour hasn't been fully announced yet, but if you just keep an eye on chloepets.org, then it will be there in the next couple of weeks. Um, and, yeah, so I'll, I'll be doing a sort of um, UK tour, which I'm also very excited about. The last one that I did was so fun, and, you know, audiences up and down the country are a real laugh. We're very blessed with a sense of humour on these aisles.
0: That's cool. We are indeed. Yeah, but the North you go as well, I think it gets even funnier.
2: Do you know, yeah... <laughs> as soon as you hit birmingham
1: you're like yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> great well, stuff pa- yeah sorry Mark. you saying off go
1: on uh, no i was just going to say great stuff and thanks so much for coming on we've we've taken up a big old chunk of your time but um, and good luck that's with it. the tour as well
0: think, it's yeah. an absolute
2: pleasure and i feel like uh, one of life's greatest joys is that we have cultivated a space where it's work for us to just, chat about, for an hour, <laughs> just to chat about football for an hour. So yeah, it's been no no chore at all and a pleasure meeting you both. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Chloe. And best of luck on the tour. And uh, yeah, hope to see you in real life sometime. Absolutely. Get, take hit care. If you
2: want tickets, take care. I will, do. I will do. Thanks right. so much.
0: Bye-bye. Thanks, bye.